There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. This is the Ocean Protect podcast. Talking about the issues that face our oceans and what we can do about it. Presented by Ocean Protect. Committed to change. Kathy Willis, welcome to the Ocean Protect podcast. Thank you. <laughs> and now it's been, it's been a while. This is the second time we've had to do one of these uh, remote podcast chats because we're all in lockdown. But look, myself and Jeremy, we actually met you, Kathy, didn't we? Uh, was it last year in Coffs Harbour? Yeah, more tropical than down here in Tassie. It was very nice to take a break, go up to yeah. Coffs. Yeah. And, and we were also yeah. free too. We were free to run <laughs> around. So <something laughs> it's especially good at Coffs. <laughs> and, and sorry, where are you calling from, Kathy? I'm in South Hobart, under the watchful eye of the mountain here in Hobart. We had snow on the mountain the other day, so it definitely has entered into wintertime. It's cold. Wow. Snow on the mountains. I, I am literally sitting here in my board shorts in sunny Brisbane and uh, <laughs> Jeremy's uh, a little bit colder in Sydney. Yeah, no, it's a bit cold down here at the moment. You know, beautiful crisp days. But yeah, look, it's, uh, it's certainly chilly at night, enough for a hoodie. So um, it must be pretty cold down in Tassie. <laughs> yeah, it's freezing. Yeah, wearing more than hoodies, wearing puffer jackets and beanies and things. It's freezing. Oh, my. Now, yeah. I've never been to Tasmania, but I hear it's very what? similar to New Zealand. So it's obviously beautiful. <laughs> well, I've never been to New Zealand, so I can't tell you. Oh, but, there you uh, go. You're not missing out on anything. Well, this has been the shortest <laughs> podcast ever. <laughs> I can actually just turn everything off. I've got all the tools here. You guys can't do anything. <laughs> Kathy, you, we were actually in Coffs Harbour collectively uh, for the Stormwater New South Wales conference, and you, you you're a, you're a big deal. You were you were the guest or the keynote speaker. I'm yeah, right that. yeah, yeah, yeah. I was one of the keynote speakers for the conference. It was my first uh, keynote, so that was pretty intimidating, to be honest. Having to oh wow talk in front of professionals and talk for forty minutes that was. Pretty daunting, but a really, really good experience. I thought you did a sterling job. Jeremy, what do you reckon? Well, I was about to say, I, I, I couldn't tell it was the first keynote. I mean, if it, if it was me up there doing a, a, a keynote at all, I'd be decking myself. So, no, you, uh, you certainly <laughs> passed that test. And it was a really, really good presentation. You know, Brad and I sit in a lot of presentations. We do a lot of presentations. And I always judge it, a presentation, by the questions at the end. You know, you had great yeah. engagement, very topical presentation, and, and obviously that's why we, we want to have a chat here. We want to dive deep into it. But, you know, well done, and it uh, was a very thought-provoking presentation with great data that not too many people have. So, uh, yeah, no, pretty excited to dive in. 
And obviously, it's pretty rare for, I guess, a CSIRO person or a staff Person? Member. Is that what you call um, them? Person? Person? Well, I'm just trying to think. So, your, your role, Kathy, we should actually introduce you properly. So, yeah. <laughs> all right, saying um, you're a PhD candidate at yep. University of Tasmania, but you're also sort of affiliated with CSIRO. Is that is that right? Yeah, I've kind of uh, got fingers and lots of pies for my PhD, which is quite nice. But, yeah, so I am affiliated with CSIRO, Ocean and Atmosphere, and then also with the NESPA Marine Biodiversity Hub and the Centre for Marine Socioecology. So got a few avenues, but, yeah, primarily from University of Tasmania. I love a good backstory, Kathy. <laughs> yeah. You're obviously doing a PhD currently. You're in your third year, is that correct? Yeah, I'm in my well, I'm in my final four months now. So I oh, hand in, wow. in yeah, handing in August, so crunch time. Yeah, yeah. And so but how did you give us the backstory? How did you find yourself doing a PhD at University of Tasmania? And I guess prior to that you studied a Bachelor of Science and yeah. Geo geography and stuff. Like Yeah. Why on earth would you want to do that, something like that? <laughs> well, I mean, I guess it really got me into science. I've always had a passion for the outdoors and trying to find out what bird that is or what plant this, this is. I guess that's really what drove me to do a science degree at the University of Tasmania. And then it wasn't, wasn't really until in my final year of uni I took some time off and did what all good Australians do and go over to Bali. <laughs> for a holiday <laughs> and I guess it was like at that point when I was uh, going scuba diving and, and whatnot and just witnessing the amount of, of rubbish that's washing out of rivers and seeing, you know, night after night piles of rubbish being raked up and just burnt or just seeing what the locals have to deal with. And so, yeah, that really just got me into trying to understand the plastic pollution a bit more and so just started going down that rabbit hole. I guess I got into my PhD from seeing a talk by a lady called Denise Hardesty. She was a, is a scientist at CSIRO down in Hobart and so she did this great talk about plastic pollution and solutions that we can do and the science behind it around Australia. And so I basically just sent her an email and had a coffee with her and said, hey, can I come? do some science with you. Wow. Yeah, cool. We know Denise quite well, and actually Ocean Protect are doing a bit of work with Denise at the moment. She is an amazingly enthusiastic, smart human being. I mean, uh, I thought we were passionate. I thought Brad was smart. (laughs) This woman is just (laughs) unbelievable. So I can see, I I mean, I've never heard her speak formally or, or at a presentation, but we've had a few meetings now and, you know, Zoom meetings and so forth. Wow, I can see why you wanted to sit down and say, "Hey, let's let's go do some research." Yeah, you should. Uh, if you get the opportunity to see her give a presentation, you'll you'll be asking all the questions at the end. She's pretty remarkable. But I, I got to ask. So obviously, you actually came along to a, a presentation that Jeremy and, and and myself did at the Coffs Harbour Conference. Like, yeah. Oh no, stop what, it! What? <laughs> <laughs> you, you were one of the three people. Mind? You were one of the three people in the audience. Obviously, this is probably the first stormwater conference that you would have mm. attended and uh, you've come along to Jeremy and my talk and I think it would have been called something like Ocean Plastic, the, 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 the cause of and solutions to 
that no one's talking about. Did we blow your mind, Kathy, or, or not? Uh, <laughs> and to well, the point, we can edit your answer. <laughs> <laughs> there was a solid amount of banter, which is always nice and different from science conferences, which is pretty wonderful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was pretty, it was really good. I, um, I love learning about what other people are doing around trying to solve our waste issues and plastic pollution. So always a big fan. Yeah. It was- Wonderful. Yeah, we like to have a bit of fun because, you know, and this is part of the, the Ocean Project podcast, is speaking to wonderful people like yourself and diving into issues, but also, you know, not making it sort of so down and, oh, my, the life's going to end. You know, we try and bring solution-based conversations and we have a bit of fun along the way because at the end of the day, we do have great jobs. We are out there, you know, trying to solve a problem like you, you know, like all these people that are out there trying to do great things, and we have a bit of fun, and uh, Brad gets to hang out with me a bit, which is great. Oh, what a, what a, I'm blessed. <laughs> 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 but it is true. Like, I think I, I was at a – I think it was a Storm at a Queensland conference, Jeremy, up in Cairns, which uh, I think you, you, you both would have missed, but there was uh, two keynote speakers around climate change impacts on the reef, and they were so – very smart individuals, had all the science behind them, but gee whiz, it was so depressing. It was all about the problem and how doom and gloom it is. And I was waiting for the whole, but, you know, or the kicker, say, okay, let's all, it's a big problem, but here's how we're going to solve it. And it was just a case of, here's a problem. Well, is there any questions? And the vibe of the room was depressing. It was just, it was like, it was, and it certainly didn't inspire any, any action for change. And I think, as environmental professionals in particular, I think we've got a responsibility, yeah, to do good science for sure and try to understand a problem as best we can, but also bring solutions to the table. I think if we just bring in problems, that's just going, there's a conversation that goes nowhere and benefits no one. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, it doesn't really enable anyone to take action if you're just telling them how bad we are at doing something. Um, yeah. <laughs> So there's a, yeah, there's some really nice movements coming out, like conservation optimism and ocean op- optimism. I'm not sure if you guys are aware of that. That's really focused on, you know, the solutions and the success stories of ocean conservation and, and other forms of conservation that's happening around the globe. So it's pretty it, great. So uh, uh, yeah, and it's been, and it's been exacerbated recently by COVID-19. I mean, you look at the stats around the world, every, you know, you know, air pollution just boom down the bottom. I mean, we as humans, we're, we're not out polluting the world in so many different ways. And you can see an instant response from the environment. I mean, I'll go one step further and go, Hey, we've been talking about the pandemic that is going to kill our environment for so long. You know, we've seen, you know, we know it's coming. We've got to learn from this. You know, we've got to learn from this pandemic and take some key notes to go, we've got to prepare for this. It's very similar in, in certain ways. And if we don't unite and get our politicians to unite over protecting our, our waterways, our air, our, our, our everything, we're going to end up in trouble and we're going to be looked back in history as complete dickheads. So the more we can spread the word like this and the more optimism we can give, the better. So let's go back to what your presentation was about because Brad and I sat through it. But uh, give, <laughs> give our listeners a bit of an overview because Brad and I at the end were chomping on the bits. I mean, Brad's little hand was trying to ask questions. Me, 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 me at the end. <laughs> and I have to admit, I, you know, I was followed pretty closely by him, you know. It's, it's certainly uh, certainly aligned with ours. So over to you, Cathy. Tell us what you were, uh, what you were presenting about. So I presented about the work that the marine debris team does at CSIRO that I'm a part of. And so I gave an overview of 
all the different avenues of research that we're currently doing, with the majority being centred around the plastic pollution and waste issue within Australia. And so my research really specifically looks at what we can do at a local council level, at a municipality, and looking at the different waste management strategies that they have in place and which ones we've found have been the most successful at reducing the amount of waste we find in our parks, on our streets and on our beaches. Yeah. yeah. And so what is the answer to that question? What are the most effective strategies then? The most recent research we did was back in 2013 and we interviewed about 40 councils around Australia and found that... What was the, sorry, 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 I'm going to stop you. What was what was interviewing 40 councils like? Because right now my, my brain, my, my head feels sore. How did you get through to 40 <laughs> people? I mean, that would have taken a long time. I mean, a lot of callbacks for, yeah. with, with council people. They're very busy. And I, I, I'm saying that legitimately. They're under-resourced. Yeah. And you're trying to get yep. data out of them and, you know, I mean, we, Brad tries all the time. So was what was that process like? Can you give us an indication? Yeah, I mean, I started ranking the hold call music, um, <laughs> what I enjoy the most. <laughs> so, you know, if you need some calming music to soothe your frustrations, I've got a long list of councils that are good to call. Well, who's the best? Um, Come on, tell us who's the best. <laughs> <laughs> Western Australia councils, they have pretty right. good music. A lot of binge pipe music is quite nice. Oh, uh, I don't mind go. it. Yeah. <laughs> Shout out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I totally agree. I mean, it's a big ask trying to lock a waste manager down who's got so many other priorities and trying to lock them down for a, you know, 30-minute, 40-minute interview to – help research is yeah it's a big ask but I mean I was so grateful for all the managers that agreed to participate it's just yeah unreal and and it's really nice because they all saw the benefit of participating as well you know if we get this snapshot of what a range of councils from different states with different levels of funding and different demographics of people we can find out you know similar strategies that can be successful at reducing waste no matter what type of council you're in, then that's, that's really great and hopefully try and, you know, help make their job a bit easier. Because I guess the councils uh, have an enormous amount of responsibilities and roles in their local communities, but in terms of waste management, like there's a whole, there's a whole range in terms of installation and management of rubbish bins, education, enforcement like littering fines, illegal dumping, et cetera. Ultimately, yep. they uh, often are responsible for maintaining various stormwater treatment assets as well. And obviously, there's other things that I'm probably not not familiar with. But out of all those sort of various initiatives, did, it, I guess the purpose of the study was to work out what is more effective or the, the most effective initiative. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, we found that you know education and outreach programs at that really focus on recycling and illegal dumping and prevention of litter were really successful, but only successful when the council also was providing adequate facilities for people to, to you know, dispose of their waste correctly. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And with those sort of, like, obviously, we're, we're, we're interested in from a stormwater perspective, but did you manage to talk to any of the sort of councils around the maintenance of their stormwater treatment assets or how many they install or et cetera? Not in the 2013 study, but we actually have just finished interviewing all of those councils again, finished the interviews last year and are analysing the results now. And stormwater assets and treatment was part of our questionnaire this year. 
And so we found out that stormwater drains are really big contributor to the amount of litter that you find on a beach or in the environment. And so from that results, we're really interested to see whether if you've got litter traps or not, is that going to make a difference on how much waste you're finding? And that's something I learned from your guys' talk and from the conference that we all went to is that, you know, there might be a lot of, you might have put in stormwater drains, but if you don't clean them, then, you know, are they really helping? Which is something you guys probably know a bit more about. <laughs> Yeah, yeah look, I mean, we certainly do, and you know, like, let's be frank about it. I mean, that was sort of a bit of a leading question. If you, you know, I sort of would, I knew that answer, but it's it's good to hear independent people saying that because at the end of the day, Ocean Protect, we're a commercial company. You know, we we build a, a range of different products, so we've got a commercial interest in that, and we're very proud of that as a as a as a as a group of young professionals and who we are. We get up, get out of bed, and we go to work, and usually have a great time doing what we love and doing what's great for the environment. But it's interesting to hear other people come to that sort of that conclusion to go, well, hold on, what is the litter that we're seeing on our beaches? Where is it coming from? And, you know, alas, while we're now working with Denise on, you know, a little project that uh, I don't know if we can talk about it, Brad, we probably can't. But anyway, I think you probably already know about it, Kathy. But again, it's about strengthening data. You know, if you really get the data right and it's good data, you can start making good decisions, you know, not decisions based on, oh, we think this, we think that. Uh, so the work that you guys have been doing is, it's, it's been, you know, great for us. I mean, we, we saw the opportunity to change the conversation, the narrative around stormwater. We were, I'm not sure if you're aware of this before we were Ocean Protect. We were called Stormwater 360 for 10 years and 18 months ago, two years ago, I guess we started to see a shift in social behaviour, straws, um, up turtles, noses, you know, social media, plastic, boy and slant, amazing people. You know, all of a sudden you couldn't go on your Instagram feed without seeing plastic in our ocean. So we made that jump to go to start the conversation, to rearrange our company focus, to go out and be leaders and, and, and start the conversation in the absence of other people doing it. And it gave us a voice as an industry. Stormwater is... I've said it before, I'll say it again, so unique. It crosses political boundaries. It crosses physical boundaries. It's basically the veins, extended veins of the ocean. And if you think of a city, we're trying to, when we built it, we're trying to get the water off so it didn't flood us. Well, we didn't think about the, the pollutant load that we generate as, as, as dirty little humans. So it's great to get the water off our cities, but it's just a great way to dump all our bloody excess waste, whether it's intentionally or unintentionally, you know, that's what we do. So it's been a, a great journey, Ocean Protecting, to where we are. But going back to the point, you know, when you started doing that talk, Brad and I were like, great, we want to we want to work with you and we want to work with you guys. And then, you know, the the, the, the moons have aligned and indirectly we're, we're doing a bit of work with you guys now. So, you know, very cool how it all comes around. Yeah, and yeah. from like a plastic pollution point of view, I mean, stormwater drains are such a neat place to intervene and try and stop plastic from entering the ocean. You know, they, they've collected waste potentially from very large areas and now they're kind of at this point source where you can intercept it before it enters the marine system and that's, that's really neat. And, and Kathy, this research that you're doing, the interviews with the various councils, is this essentially the, the main focus of your PhD? Yeah, it's the heart of my PhD, the crux of it. Yeah, yeah. yeah cool. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Are you allowed to uh, share any uh, pre-PhD findings? <laughs> Before I have to call you Dr. Kathy? Uh, yeah, I wish you could call me Dr. Kathy, but not yet. Oh, yeah. it's close. You can smell it. Yeah. Um, but no, being um, cheeky, are there, any, are there any general comments you could um, you know, give our listeners, like a wee sneak peek? Well, I've just completed some analysis looking at like whether councils have changed their strategies to prevent waste. And then if they have, how they're changing and what might be causing them to shift. So we kind of looked at it from three main ways, you know, are they trying to prevent waste by kind of preventing crime from occurring? So by illegal dumping or littering, are they trying to prevent waste from entering the environment using kind of financial incentives or disincentives? So the container deposit schemes that have been implemented across a few states and the plastic bag ban is another example or are they just like trying to prevent waste by educating their residents you know that doing the right thing actually helps the environment you know putting your rubbish in the bin is is good (laughs) and so just analyze that and it's pretty neat really seeing a, a focus of councils towards all three of those areas but since 2013 we've seen more councils putting in enforcement of illegal dumping and littering we found they're also increasing education and, of course, those like financial incentives and disincentives. So whether that is then translating to reduction of litter in the environment, have to wait and see. Oh. Yeah, I know. It's a big build-up. It's a big build-up. Well, 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 hold on. But we can talk to something. We can talk to something. I mean, thanks for giving us. I mean, we were, you know, on the edge of our seats waiting for something there. I can see Brad and yeah. I. But let's talk about container deposit schemes. We've got our great friends at Tomra, Rachel from Tomra. Shout out to those guys. It's proven that the implementation of, of, of container deposit uh, schemes reduces I think plastic bottles by up to 40%, Brad. Am I right in saying that? Well, hang on. You're asking the wrong person. That's actually a CSIRO study, oh, I believe. Oh, boom. Okay. Dr. Dr. Kathy. the co-author of the paper. <laughs> so, Kathy, yeah, is yeah. it true? Is it true? <laughs> so, yeah, a colleague of mine, Kamar Skyler, she looked at container deposit schemes in Australia and in the United States. And it was really neat. And she found that putting in a container deposit scheme does show declines of plastic bottles on beaches and in the environment, which is great. And from what yeah. I remember, it, it actually results, uh, the results showed the, with the presence of a container deposit scheme. I'll just explain what a container deposit scheme for people who don't understand. It's where you basically return your single use plastic water bottles in exchange for typically 10 cents. That's actually, those schemes are available in various states in Australia. But from what I understand, 
just by having those container deposit schemes present, the littering of single-use water bottles and other sort of beverages is reduced by around 40%. Is that that's correct? Am I right in saying that? Uh, yeah, I think so. Um, yeah. Well, it better be because Brad keeps banging on about it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> But that, that for my mind, paper, yeah. yeah, look, uh, that, you'll have to take my word for it then, but that, yeah. for my mind, is substantial. Like, and it's like huge. that obviously, obviously helps the environment, but obviously, uh, generates a lot of revenue for individuals who want to return. But also under the Tomra schemes and others, you can do containers for change where you can actually take that money, the 10 cents per bottle and donate to a, a selected charity. And they're raising millions of dollars for these various charities, which is, again, a real positive. Yeah, it's it's bloody wonderful. I can't I can't yeah. believe how successful it's been. Yeah. And actually, I just I just remembered. Obviously, you're calling from Hobart, and mm. am I right in saying that the city of Hobart are implementing or will soon implement a ban on some single-use plastics? And I think by memory, it was takeaway food, plastic containers, straws, coffee cups, and lids. Is that in place in Hobart? Yeah, so I think it's in the kind of transition stage. So I know that it's been passed and and now it's, the, you know, there's I think maybe three or four years, don't hold me to that number, but of allowing businesses to transition to, you know, compostable materials and leaning away from those single-use plastics, which is just so great. And I think first place in the world to really implement that. So it's super exciting. And one of the concerning things with the likes of the global pandemic that we're going through at the moment is is hygiene, you know, mm. and, and plastic companies potentially going out there and marketing the hygiene value behind single-use plastics. I mean, look, I go to my coffee shop when I'm working from home, which has been sort of the last five weeks. I go to the office, you know, once every couple of days. I have to go to my coffee shop and drink out of a bloody plastic container. We It, it absolutely shits me. Now, how long are we going to see this continue for? I mean, is this going to be a thing where they go, look, it's unhygienic and use it as an excuse? Or is it just going to go back to normal in, you know, a few months' time or a year's time? I don't know, but we as environmentalists have really got to advocate for, you know, right now, so much more plastic's being used everywhere, single-use bottles, mm. everything. So when you say it's getting passed through the Hobart court right now or the Hobart you know, jurisdiction, geez, big business will start crying out and going, well, hold on, I can't trade uh, unless I'm, I've got to provide this in a single-use um, because it's, you know, the most hygienic way to do it. So, well, I don't know, any comment, Brad, Kathy? I mean, you can still have single-use items, but they just don't have to be plastic the whole time, you know? Like, you can still maintain that, I think, a level of hygiene, especially, you know, for takeaway food containers and things. Like, cardboard is, is a great alternative, and I know a lot of restaurants and takeaway businesses in Hobart have already transitioned to that, and there are lots of alternatives with the kind of vegetable starch, plastic-like containers that are available there so i mean i think those alternatives still have that same level of hygiene so i don't think hope not anyway that there'll be too much pushback yeah and it's worth recognizing as we're always told in the media at the moment we're in an unprecedented period of disruption and i think obviously there'll be certain precautions like the lockdowns and the, the social distancing and stuff like that which obviously are in place now but will be essentially relaxed in time that period of, oh, you can't use your, your keep cup or you can't do that. Obviously, yeah, that might be in place mm. now, but I can't imagine that's going to be in place 
uh, in perpetuity. But I think it's worthwhile noting that I reckon we'll look back uh, at this period, you know, of using these single-use straws and plastic cutlery and containers and single-use water bottles and look back and go, I can't believe we did that. I just It just seems ridiculous. And I remember reading one of your papers that talked about how much water consumption in Australia is actually from single-use water bottles. And it takes a lot to surprise me, Kathy, but the number that in your paper was, and it's worth noting Australia has beautiful water across our country, very clean, very safe, very healthy, but still 10% of all water in Australia that's consumed is actually from single-use water bottles. That gobsmacked me. Yeah, it's mind-blowing. I mean, you can just drink water out of the tap and if you don't like the flavour, like you can get filters of all kinds or chuck a bit of lemon in and it just yeah when I first came across that statistic as well it blew my mind like we 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 have such luxury of being able to drink water from a tap compared to so many other places in the world that the fact that you know people are still going out and drinking water from a plastic bottle like the mind boggles just don't understand yeah Yeah, it's just weird and just a couple of things. Number one, we should push out to, you mentioned how the city of Hobart are the first council or the first local area, local government in the world, I think, to have a ban on single-use plastics. And I think that was very much driven by, I think, councillor Bill Harvey from the, Bill Harvey yes. from the city of Hobart. So kudos to Bill. And it's just also worthwhile noting, like we've talked about a lot of, uh, obviously your PhD research and, and the research of, of your other colleagues at the CSIRO, but for people outside Australia, they might not be familiar with CSIRO. It essentially is Australia's national science agency. But I'm, I'm really keen to understand how CSIRO really got involved in the ocean plastic space in the first time. Like, like there's obviously science. There's so many sort of scientific endeavours and research areas that uh, CSIRO can and does go into. But obviously a, a large portion of your focus, of CSIRO's focus, is ocean plastic. Are you able to sort of give an insight as to why that's the case? I mean, it's being really pushed by Dr. Denise Hardesty. I mean, she's the team leader and is behind a lot of the external funding that our team receives and working with many partners around the globe to try to solve the plastic pollution problem. And so I think she's really like the driving force behind the research that our team does through CSIRO. And I mean, CSIRO are all about doing science that has impact. So you know, we're doing science that is helping, you know, managers on the ground or people who don't have the capacity to do this research. I think plastic is such an obvious area of research that really needs solving. From our conference, Kathy, did it, in, in Brad's words, blow your mind about <laughs> how much or how many other contaminants are going down our drains? I mean, plastic is just one that's, you know, severely messing with our creeks, rivers and oceans. But from a stormwater geek point of view, did you go, wow, geez, this is a great way to intercept not just plastic, but loads of different contaminants. What were your views on that? I was surprised at myself about how much I really got into stormwater drains <laughs> over those three days. <laughs> maybe I'm in the wrong field of research. Maybe I should be a stormwater drain person. <laughs> we can give you an Ocean Protect t-shirt. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Boom, one's on its way out. <laughs> Along with a keep cup. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I mean, heavy metals and organic compounds and things that are, you know, that were also flushing down our drains is, is boggling. And I mean, at least plastics and litter are 
you can see them, you know, and you can pick them up off the ground. And so they're a very visual thing and, you know, relatively easy to remove from the water compared to, say, these like other molecule-based contaminants going down our drain. And they're things we can't see and just often not aware of, you know. It's not in front of our face, so it's not an issue for us. So, Well, well it's... Um we spoke to uh, Laura Wells last week, who's a fantastic advocate for everything to do with the environment and a funny chick as well. You know, it, w- one of the things that we did talk about was the fact that plastic, as you say, it's just one contaminant, but it's not, stormwater's not sexy. So, you know, mm. our industry, I mean, apart from Brad and I, we're not that interesting, <laughs> you know. We go to that, you know, you went to Coss Harbour. I mean, that was probably the wickedest time. I mean, Brad, you should have seen him on the dance floor, you know, shaking <laughs> it up. But really, you know, it's traditionally not been a very, you know, it's boring. It's I can't see it, you know. Like, lots of attention around the globe goes to these people pulling pollution out of the ocean and and, and great, awareness, it's awesome. Mop and bucket, and, and we, we harp on about it all the time. But, our, our, I mean, it's like, what do you guys do? Oh, we're, we're in stormwater. Oh, you just deal with the, the, the wastewater. You, you and, are you in sewerage, are you? And a lot of people don't even understand the difference between stormwater and sewer. Um, yeah. Let alone, oh, you want, you want me to go down a hole and have a look at stuff? Well, yeah, that's what we do all day. So part of it is telling the story, the narrative around what happens and, and how stormwater works. And, you know, the more people are aware of it, uh, the more people start to understand and then you get real behavioural change, which is uh, what we want to see. We want to, you know, the waste management hierarchy. We want to put ourselves out of a job. If we don't need these devices because we just, you know, don't pollute anything as human beings, great. But that's still a long, long way away. You know, you can you can take down uh, human behaviour. We can avoid using single-use plastics. But I'll throw something to you. I don't know, I don't know if you're have seen a Nat Geo paper around microplastics to do with tyre degradation. Brad, I'm not sure when that came out. Have you seen it, Kathy? Yeah, um, yeah I think I've come across some, yeah, yeah pollution. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, and, you know, that, I mean, Brad and I have been going on about it for a while because it's not just on, on roads, it's not just uh, heavy metal, you know, contaminants and, you know, your car fumes go up and settle down. And But the amount of plastic that they estimate is coming off roads is shocking. Brad, what's the stat? 20%? Oh, I think I think it's around is it around twenty to thirty percent of all uh, <coughs> microplastics in our waterways and the ocean is from tide degradation alone, which, which staggers staggers me. I still gobsmacked with that sort of number. Well, but, but yeah. if you if you look at the composition of a tire, I think it's something mm. like and again, don't quote me, twenty six percent rubber, twenty eight percent plastic, and the rest is made up of metal and so forth. So. When you start looking at those proportions and you know that your tyres wear out, well, when the the treat, if you look at a racetrack after a Formula One race, they're black, you know, the road's black. You know, that's all the rubber and plastic that that, that is made of tyres or tyres are made up of on the ground. What happens when it rains? It washes that off and goes down our drain. So maybe your, maybe your next research should be on uh, tyres, Cathy. Yeah. <laughs> you be, you be doctor, doctor, <laughs> doctor, doctor. <laughs> Maybe you should do a PhD, Jeremy. You could do a, you could maybe get an honorary PhD. Mate, I'd do it. Do you know what I'd do it on? <laughs> oh, I hate to think. I really don't want to know that. Haircuts, mate. Haircuts. Get one. <laughs> get one. That's my PhD. Just get one. Oh, bless. But getting, getting back to the conversation quickly, very quickly. <laughs> 
like getting back to your comment about Britta, uh, sorry, Denise uh, Hardison. No, 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 yeah, let's bring this up. Bring this up. Bring this up yeah. because <laughs> hopefully she'll honest. listen I to call, this episode. I call Denise Britta because her full name is Britta Denise Hardesty. And I asked her one day, is it Britta or Denise? And she goes, oh, look, Either one. it depends. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and there was a story for it. And we were like, you know, we just sort of got to, I oh, know it was only a second or third meeting or whatever. And when Brad brought it up, I was like, oh, geez, I really want to know what to say. And when she said, I'll use any one, it's like, it's still confusing. I'm like, Britta, Denise, <laughs> Britta, Denise. Like, do you know when she's Britta and do you know when she's Denise, Kathy? And it- oh, she's just Denise. Oh, okay, cool. So oh, she's on, so she's Denise. Of- oh, okay, cool. So we better get on too, yeah. mate. But getting back to the but getting back to the sort of driving force behind CSIRO's uh, research around ocean plastic and how it's been driven uh, largely by the enthusiasm, passion, and intelligence of, of Denise. It, for, my, for my mind, it's just another reminder of the power of one woman. Chicks rule the world. It just shows you, you know, bullfed blokes like J- Jeremy and I, you know, we sort of do a song You're and not dance a bloke, man. Like Come on. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, uh, obviously Britta, uh, Denise is a really strong driving force behind this whole research campaign. And on the back of that research campaign and science, I can see significant change and improvement in the health of our waterways and oceans in particular. But getting back to what Jeremy was saying in terms of, you know, telling a great story. Yeah, look, absolutely any environmental issue or problem needs to have a good story to tell with it. But I think probably more importantly, it needs to have good science behind it as well. And for my mind, and I've talked about this before in terms of the, the three key environmental issues facing the planet, you know, deforestation, climate change, and ocean plastic. For my mind, ocean plastic is the easiest one to solve. But I also think we should use this one as a template to solve the other problems. What do we need to actually solve ocean plastic? Well, for my mind, yeah, a good story is, is, is really important. A whole bunch of passionate, intelligent, hardworking individuals. But fundamentally, it, we really need good science. And I think that's what really CSIRO are bringing to this issue. And for my mind, that is really, really fantastic. It, we can't just rely on, you know, Jeremy and, and myself to sort of, yeah, oh, we t- took some photos and we got a little bit of data. We're, look, we're not scientists. And that's why it's so fantastic to have a, a such a well-respected organisation like CSIRO on the scenes doing the, the science, basically sciencing the shit out of it, to quote Matt Damon out of the, out of uh, that Mars movie. Yeah. Uh, well, obviously, we'll Love help and provide data as, as best we can, as, as I'm sure our councils and other sort of groups and stakeholders will, but to have CSIRO essentially doing what they do in terms of their science collation and, and analysis and recommendations, it's so critical in my mind. It's so important as well for what you guys are doing as well, of like trying to translate that science to a format and platform where, you know, it's accessible to everybody because, you know, a lot of the science can go unnoticed, you know. We're kind of sitting here with our heads deep in the computer with the data tacking away and, you know, get these answers and then it's off on to the next project and kind of, you know, not always translating that information to helping managers to the general public so they understand what's going on in the environment, understanding the problem deeply. These things like podcasts and things are super important and key to to getting people to act and, yeah, being more pro-environmental. Thanks for listening to the Ocean Protect podcast. Episodes are released weekly and the next episode will feature part two of this chat. If you'd like to find out more about us and what we do, check us out at oceanprotect.com.au.